today is from James 2, and that can be found on page 1214 in the Pew Bibles. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised, those who love him. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you by faith what I do. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds 
is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father God, we give thanks for your word. And we pray now that you would fill this room with your spirit. Help us to hear the things that you want us to hear this day. And help us to turn away from the things that you want us to forget. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, lovely people. And it is so fab to be with you all today. And I'm going to say one thing I like about church here this morning, and that is today it began at 11 o'clock. I'm used to doing a Eucharist at 8 a.m., but today this is my first service, so I could casually get up and casually drift into church. And one of the things I love about being in church about 45 minutes or so before the beginning of the service is just being here and seeing all the various ministries of the church come together, from making tea and coffee to the wardens, welcoming people to the worship group, and watching Sue do her thing as well. And I'm going to say there was one thing, especially this morning, I loved watching Sue, and it was such a Sue thing, and that was move the case that was there. And I got in my head, once a warden, always a warden, where there's need to do something, you just crack on and do it. Now, if anyone here doesn't know Sue, I can tell you that Sue's fab. Everyone who knows Sue knows that already. But, thank you. <laughs> but one thing you may not know about is how much she does for us, not just here as a church in St. Mark's, but our churches of our LMA. She is dean of our, sorry, not dean, that's Mark. She is chair of our LMA council and does so many things. And the vast majority of things that she does do are completely and utterly unseen. Now, for me, a lot of my job is easy. I go for a strut down the prom, wherever, and people say to me, are you a vicar? And I say yes, or I'm in fancy dress, whatever I feel like on that day. And people see the things that I do out loud. But people like Sue and so many others, you don't see it. It's all about service to the heart. And Sue, as a number of us here in the church, are unsung heroes, if you will, of the church. And in that way, having a lot in common with the author of our, of our reading today, James. Now, James who we started looking at last week and will do for the next few weeks, was, it is believed at least to be, the brother of Jesus. There are a few other candidates out there for who he could have been, but it's generally accepted that he was the brother of Jesus, the little brother of Jesus. And following Jesus' ascension into heaven, he was the one who pastored, chaired, and took care of the needs of the church in Jerusalem. While some of the other lads went off to the world to tell people about Jesus, James stayed still and pastored the church there. And for that reason, you'll get a few St. Jameses here and there, but generally speaking, people love Peter. All people love Paul. And largely, they will ignore this man, James, and all the good work that he did. And we see that all at play in this letter, this epistle that 
he wrote to the church. Now, even though this epistle appears towards the end of the New Testament, it is largely believed that it was the first one, the first letter to be written. It was written for the Jewish Christians throughout the world, and especially in Jerusalem. And what is so phenomenal about it is, it could have been written yesterday. The church in Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, though culturally very different, has so much in common with the church today. They had their issues going on. We have our issues going on. They had money problems. We have money problems. They had issues with division. We have issues with division. And what's encouraging, if indeed you can be encouraged by these things, is they've always been there. For 2,000 years, these things have existed, and it's likely that they will carry on being there as well. But what's also encouraging is the Lord has much to say on it all. And James' epistle is so wise, it is so practical, it is so amazing that you can just read it on its own and get some insight into it. Or you can just read a verse and have a sermon on it. The wisdom contained wasn't just for the church then, but is there for the church today. Now, this to begin with, Sue talked about covenant this morning and the promises of God and what promises of God we might hold on to today. And I, at that point, looked at these rainbows and held on to those. But I also held on to one of the great promises that came through in this letter of James, namely the one that proclaims, love your neighbor. James repeats this most famous line of Christianity, this first commandment or second commandment, this great commandment, and the word that sums up what we are all about, love. If you were to ask the average Christian in any church up and down the land, throughout the world in fact, what our faith is all about, quite a few people will come back and say love. Some might chuck in holiness, some might chuck in obedience, some might chuck in the scriptures, but when we hear the word love, we know what it's all about. We are about love, and what's more, we are expected to be about love as well. We are called to love our neighbor, and what's really challenging is the rest of the world knows that as well. They know that we are called to love our neighbor as well, and sometimes we'll even hold it against us when we don't. It is the basic cornerstone of what we are meant to be and how we are meant to live out our faith in the world as Jesus loved us. So we are meant to love others. One simple four-letter word in English, love, summing up what we're all about. And it's a lovely word, isn't it? Love. I use it all the time. My kids have used it with me this morning on Father's Day. It's a lovely word. And it's all, you know, puppy dogs and ice cream and all the rest of it. But here's the problem. It is a completely and utterly pointless word unless we do something with it. 
If I was to say to Liz, you know, later on, I love you, and then basically did nothing, ignored her completely, did nothing around the home, did nothing to help her out or listen to her and what she's done today, that's not love. I'm not living out my love for her. And in the same way we can talk about us being loving, but if we don't live it out, then we're full of it. We are not really being who we are meant to be. So we have the theoretical word love, which we hear the church talk about a lot, but then we've got the all-important practical outpouring of it. And the practical outpouring exists for us both in the church and outside the church. And James, in this chapter, makes that clear from the very off. Because to begin with, he talks about an issue which really does still affect the church today. And that is favoritism. Now, I want to put a bit more context on that. Because this time last week, I wasn't here. I was in another one of our churches. And we had a very lovely civic service for the RNLI. And it was a wonderful occasion. And we really thanked the Lord and prayed for those who do the good work out on the sea. But as is the case in a lot of these civic occasions, there was a lot of people in bling, a lot of chains going on, and a fair whack of gold. And what happened? All those donning the gold sat at the front, and the great unwashed sat at the back. And um, I thought, well, that's fine. That's what happens in these things. And on the Monday morning, I came to prepare the sermon for this week, and the first thing I see is these words about favoritism. And essentially, how we give favor to those who look rich. And I just looked and I thought, blinking heck, I've just done that yesterday. Without raising an eyebrow to myself. It didn't occur to me that there could have been something wrong with that. And it led me down a moral conundrum for the rest of this week, working out, is that wrong? Are doing services like that wrong? Was I in the wrong? Etc., etc. Was I really showing favoritism? Or was it just respect? And I came to the conclusion that actually blaming that and looking at favoritism was a bit of a red herring because those sorts of services are a meeting place between the rest of the world and the church and we do need to show respect to those who are coming in and pray for them. But even more so, the issue of favoritism is far deeper than any of that. Now, if you are hearing for the first time today and you've been in church for a long time that favoritism isn't good, we need to have a chat. You're not going to learn anything new today. We know it, don't we? That favoritism in any way is not good. We know that favoritism isn't of God. But the problem is we naturally do it. And we naturally do it for one very simple good reason. And we naturally do it because we are human beings. And as human beings, we are inclined to favor one person over another. My mom was a teacher. And I remember fellow teachers once saying about kids in the class, if you really think that you don't favor one over another, you're a liar you're always going to prefer some children to others. And the same goes for patients in hospital, etc., etc. 
People are naturally drawn to people who are like them. As a church, as the people of God, we are not meant to show favoritism. And when James wrote this down, he wasn't speaking a brand new truth to shock the mind of the church. This had been in the law of Moses from the very beginning of the scriptures. It was imprinted in the people of God that they shouldn't show favoritism. But being the people of God and human beings, they always screwed up. So here we have James once again repeating that favoritism is not a good thing. But we do it so naturally. Speaking of Father's Day, I think about my own parents, and I love them both equally. And I'm this kind of weird 50-50 mix of the two of them. My mom is a wonderful person, some of you know her through Encounter, and a wonderful woman of God. She's been a Christian for many, many years. She's quite gentle in her mannerisms. She came from quite a middle-class background. Her mother was a teacher, she was a teacher, etc. And generally speaking, she could walk into any church up and down the land and within a few weeks would be accepted and welcomed into the congregation. What I'm saying is she speaks good Christian. My dad, on the other hand, came to faith quite a lot later on. He's a council estate kid, kind of made good. And even though on a professional, academic level, he and my mother are like that, it takes him much longer to fit in anyway. My mother speaks a certain way, my dad doesn't. So it takes a lot longer. Generally speaking, people will favor my mother over my father. We all know it, we all laugh about it, but it's there. As people, we favor those who are generally speaking like us. We favor people who we can relate to, who we like, who we get along with, who are of the same class of us, the same academic achievements as us, the same pretty much everything of us. And in one sense, in a worldly sense, that's fine. But when it comes to the church of God, and James knew this very well, it is destructive. Because favoritism in the church leads to two things. First of all, it leads to ministries not being released. And when the ministries of God aren't released, the church and the body of the church isn't functioning in all of its goodness. When some parts of that body are functioning far more than others, then we've got a problem. And the other reason is, it leads to resentment. How many of us know what it feels like to feel resentment because we've been overlooked for someone else? That might be in work, it might be in the church, it might be in our families, you name it. But we carry those resentments. And we know that when resentment creeps into anywhere, any organization, and especially the church, it can be completely and utterly destructive. And churches get destroyed because of it. Churches split because of it. The good work of the kingdom of God doesn't happen because of it. And James knew this very well. And as I say, I'm not saying anything new today. You know all of this already. And 
those who were reading James' epistle knew it already as well. What this is, is more of a reminder. And if you will, a check on ourselves. To check, are we showing favourites? Are we into favouritism? Or are we really welcoming all people the same? Treating all people the same? And releasing all ministries exactly the same? The devil knows the power of the unified church. The devil knows the power of what the church can do when it is together with all people feeling equally welcome and all people equally ministering. And the devil doesn't like it. And the devil will do anything that he can to get in the way and destroy it. We need to be aware always of how the devil seeks to work in his church. And we need to be willing to put that love into practice outside of the church as well. James went on in this letter to talk about faith and deeds and how we have faith that is brilliant, but we need to put it into action as well. That is to say, we need to have the works that accompany it. Now, over the centuries, this particular passage of Scripture has caused quite the hullabaloo, and I'll tell you for why. In our faith, it is very well accepted that we are saved by grace. We are saved by the grace of God. That is to say that the moment we come to faith, the moment we confess our sins, that is it. We are in the kingdom of God. And there's nothing we can do to add to that. We are saved by faith. We are not saved by the good works that we do. We're not saved by the money that we give. We're not saved by being great people. There is no special room in heaven for those who tithe a certain amount. We are saved simply by the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But here we have James saying, yep, but you've also got to put it into work. You've got to put it into action. And the truth is, yes, we are saved by grace, but because of the love of God in us, we should be motivated to do something about it. We should be motivated to go out and put that faith into practice. We need to be motivated to put the love of Christ into practice. As we hear this word love, we need to do something about it. It's not just as easy for me to go up to my brother Dandelion and say, I love you. I've got to show that I love him. It's not as easy for me to go up to Elaine and say, I love you. I've got to show why I love her. It's not easy for me to go up to a stranger in the street and say, I love you. I don't advise it anyway. But <laughs> you have to show why we do it. And we need to show what God has done for us because that is the most powerful thing that we have at our disposal. Yes, we have the truth of the gospel. Yes, we have the truth of what Christ has done for us and we need to share those words. But we also need to back it up with our action. It is no good me saying, you know what? 
I'm a great preacher, I'm a great singer, I'm a great this, that, or other, unless we are willing to do those things. I could tell all of you today that I've got a voice of a songbird, but you haven't heard me sing. I could brag about how I would have been signed by some record label when I was 18, but no one's heard me sing. And you all look and go, that's a lot of nonsense. Let's hear you sing then. And the same goes for the rest of the world. They hear Christians all the time talk about love. You turn on something, songs of praise, and you hear some bishop talking about love. You'll watch something on YouTube and some Christian will talk about love. And that's cracking, isn't it? But you know what? What are you going to do about it then? What are we going to do about this word love? What are we going to do to put it into action? And James was really harsh while pushing this point home in the epistle. He even went as far to compare the church to demons, saying to them, you say you believe in Christ, cracking. The demons say that as well. They know who Jesus is. But if you don't put it into work, then you've got problems. There is nothing worse than a lukewarm church. And in fact, what James goes on to say is that a church who are not willing to put things into action are dead. If we are not willing to show the love of Christ and put it into action, we are dead. We are worthless. We are nothing. There is no value. We need to be willing to put it into action. I've heard so many sermons in the church on love. And all I want to do is turn around and say, yeah, but what are you going to do about it? I hear the great theological thing that God is love. And you want to say, yeah, lovely, but what are we doing about it? There is so much to be encouraged about when we look at the church. The work of the food bank is incredible. In this LMA, the work of the well is amazing. Things like parents and toddlers too. In the UK, 50% of parents and toddlers groups are run by churches. But sometimes we need to do some of the little things as well. Make a cup of tea for somebody at work. Smile at a stranger. Talk to someone at a bus stop. Show the love of Christ. And do it in such a way that when people see us, they think, why? What is going on in you? Why do you want to do this for me? The works that come through our faith are the most powerful tool for evangelism we have. The integrity that comes with showing what that love means is incredibly powerful. And if we really want to see the church grow, if we really want to see the kingdom of God grow, we can't just talk amongst ourselves. We need to talk out there. And we can't just talk out there. We need to do out there. People really need to see that we put our words into action. This letter is so incredible because it is so relevant. There's nothing new in it. Nothing that I've said today is going to blow your mind and go, core. I never heard about that before. You know it all already. But doing it 
is something else. Today we've been reminded of what love really means. The love that we have for each other, the danger of favoritism, and the need to put that love into action. And I guess I want to give a practical vicar challenge this week. And that is for all of us at some point to put our faith into action through a loving gesture. When I was in the Scouts, we had that phrase, do a good deed every day. Well, let's do a good works for the Lord. Let us do something that blesses someone this week. And not with an ulterior motive, just because the love of God compels us. Because our faith compels us. Because Christ himself compels us. May we go. May we put that love into action. And may the kingdom of God be blessed. There is so much misery out there at the moment. The cost of living. War. Rumors of war. Illness. Sickness. You name it. People need to see good news. They need to see good things. And I believe that we are called to do those things. May the love of God compel us today. In his name. Amen.